To the Chris Williams Podcast Hour. And hot damn, I'm still here. Thank you again for listening. And please follow us on social media, the Chris Williams Podcast Hour. It can be found on IG and Twitter at the Chris Will Pod and on Facebook, the Chris Williams Podcast Hour. Friends, how many of us have them? Friends, ones we can depend on. Friends, today I have a good friend on the show, and I wasn't sure how this was going to go. I didn't even know how long it will go, and honestly, I really don't care. I just knew one of my boys was coming on the podcast, and instead of him interviewing me, I finally get to interview him, and I'm really excited about it. Friends, before we go any further, on today's podcast, I get to talk to Carmen Angelo Tedesco of WTAM and the Eagles Broadcast Network. Let's get to it because everyone loves Carmen. As you will soon see, he's a lot of fun. Oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing this. Friends. You never know how it might turn out. Friends, this is the Chris Williams Podcast Hour. Today, help me welcome one half of the voice of St. Edward football and the executive producer of the Mike Trevisano Show on News Radio WTAM 1100 in Cleveland. He is one of my best friends, one of my former classmates at St. Edward High School. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Chris Williams Podcast Hour, the one and only Carmen Angelo. Carmen, welcome. <laughs> Far too enthusiastic, my friend. <laughs> Love it, though. Oh, but Car- Carmen, I'm excited to have you on here, man. Well, uh, hey, I'm honored to be on it. I mean, gosh, Coach Flaherty's been on, Coach Urbis has been on, it's been Chucky Brown has been on, uh, all the boys from our class were on. I mean, I'm hey, I'm along for the ride. I'm just I'm humble and honored to be here, truly. <laughs> All right. Well, Carmen, welcome to the Chris Williams Podcast Hour. And, buddy, when I say I cherish this opportunity, I truly mean it. You know, we've been oh, friends for years, and, you know, you're usually always doing the interviews. So, so for once, I get to interview you. So thanks for coming on, and hopefully you'll share some memories. I know you like to tell stories, so 
This is the perfect form for you. <laughs> uh, we shouldn't have any issues there, my friend. Let's do it. <laughs> and I'll try not to call you Nooch. I'll, just, I'll try not no, to call you know Carmen. No, you can call me Carmen Nooch Tedesco. That's who I am. You know, that's me. I'm, the day I draw my final breath, I'll be Nucci. So, no, it's good. You call me Nucci. I'm more comfortable with that, certainly. All right. All right. So remember, this podcast is all about you. We're telling stories about your life. So this is going to be fun. Oh. This, is, this is exciting for me. So <laughs> We need more than an hour, my friend. I know. I know. <laughs> all right. You're in half of my stories. <laughs> All right, so let's start by talking about, you know, where you grew up in Fairview, uh, being a member of the St. Angeles Parish, and how you became an Eagle for life. Oh, boy. Well, I was born and raised uh, in Fairview and um, had a a great group of kids I hung out with. Um, I went to St. Angela and uh, received the... essentially all of my sacraments at St. Angela, so um, forever grateful for that. And, um, you know, I uh, then went on to St. Ed's, and, you know, it's kind of ironic. When I was at St. Angela, it was almost uh, becoming like a feeder school for St. Ignatius, and I was one of just a handful of kids from St. Angela to attend St. Edward. It was myself, Paul Kapka, Bobby Bardos, and there may have been uh, one or two more. There really weren't a lot of us uh, from who were graduated from St. Angela to attend St. Edward. Really, the rest of the boys went to St. Ignatius, and you know, quite frankly, and it, you know, it has nothing to do with the rivalry. But I really haven't spoken to those young men uh, in quite some time. It, you know, it was a bit bizarre. I, uh, you know, for eight years, these guys were my best friends, and then you know, through athletics and whatnot. Um, they were my adversaries. It was really, really bizarre. But, you know, um, kids that I met, even before we got to St. Ed's, I mean, Chris, we've known each other since uh, I think it's 1977 when, you know, you and Scotty Seta were uh, playing for Jimmy the Greek and I was with Mr. Gannon's, uh, you know, Shaker's Hitching Post. And, you know, we've we've, uh, rolled with each other ever since, even when we were playing against each other before we got to high school, you know. Um, Yes. We were brothers at a, a pretty young age, and, you know, it, it's been a tremendous ride, you know. But, uh, yeah. yeah, born and raised in Fairview, went to St. Angelo, went to St. Ed's, and um, I could not have been in a better place than St. Edward at the time. All right. Now, you brought it up. So we met playing hot stove baseball. You were that little yes. bow-legged Italian kid who knew how to chew dip when <laughs> we were 9 <laughs> and 10 years old. Right, man, talk yeah. about those days. And don't forget to talk about the convertible Papa Tedesco used to drive. <laughs> oh, well, well um, yes, I, uh, I was a little bow-legged Italian kid, and unfortunately, uh, I hate to admit this, but I, I did have dip in my mouth at, you know, eight, nine years old, uh, and I'm not proud of it. And unfortunately, it's still something that I do today, but – you know, it's just, you know, I'm uh, I'm the grandson of uh, a coal miner, and uh, a lot of my family were, you know, from western Pennsylvania, and they were coal miners, and they all dipped, and they all had beagles, and they all hunted, and, you know, I'm uh, I'm proud of that uh, that legacy and that tradition, you know, being uh, one of the younger Tedescos, but, um, yeah, and my dad, he did have that uh, Oldsmobile convertible. That thing was slick. You know, I felt important when I was in that thing. You know, I don't know how he got it because he didn't have two cents to rub together, but he got that car. You know, God love him, right? (laughs) 
Yes, he did. Yes, he did. <laughs> I just remember the first time I wrote it, everybody forced me to the driver's side. I was like, what? Why do you guys want me to sit over here? And then next thing I know, I, I saw your dad. <laughs> He looked out the window and he, he shot he shot a water at you and it just went flying by my head. I was like, oh yeah, what the hell did I get into? Uh, no, you know what? Uh, he uh, he always will love number thirty, always. You know, and I mean, even you know, before we even got to high school, we had so many good times together. Like when we were playing in the state uh, quarters, uh, I think the quarters were down in Silver Springs for hot stove. One um, thing. Yes. You know, and yes, we'd play against each other, and then we would go and we would go swim uh, in the springs down there after our games. You know, and uh, it, it was tremendous. It was those are some of the greatest memories of my life, Chris. They truly, truly are. Absolutely, absolutely. Now you guys went swimming. I would wade in the water until I listened to Danny Bayslack one time. <laughs> they had that big slide in the middle of the springs. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, Bayslack tells me, oh, the man, just go in there. I can't swim. I can't swim. And he's like, the water's not deep at all. The water's not deep. So I take my butt up on the top of that slide, and I slid into the water, and I hit the bottom, and I open my eyes, and I see nothing but water. And all I remember is the lifeguard had to come and get me, and everybody's laughing at me. So <laughs> I don't remember that. I'm sure I was there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bayslack remembers. He laughed. He thought that was the funniest thing ever. So, you know, nah, let me tell you I'm something not, about Bayes. <laughs> you, can't, you can't trust Bayes as far as you can throw him. That man, we'd be in Eddie Mack's class taking the uh, English test, and I sat two seats behind him in the next row, and he would turn around halfway through the test, and he'd be like, Nooch, no, you can't cheat off me. And I'm sitting there, I'm minding my own business. You know, I, I'm trying to make something up, you know, and finish the test. And he's calling me out and dogging me, but you know what? Uh, to this day, I see Danny out and about, and every time I see him, I smile. You know, I mean, you guys, all of you. Every time I see you, you know, I, I smile when I'm around all of you and in your presence. You know, it's a, uh, yeah, you know, not to, you know, talk up the brotherhood. You know, I'm, I'm not talking it up. That's what it is. You know, I mean, the camaraderie. And what I miss most is just being in that locker room and hanging out. You know, I mean, that's that's yeah. where that's where all the fun happened. That's where all the fun happened. It sure did. It sure did. Now, you also played CYO football. What was that like? Actually, what memories do you have you, in those days? You know what? I didn't play uh, CYO. We didn't have um, a team at San Angelo because we had so many kids. We had a, a little muni league, and it was it was a pretty darn good muni league. I mean, you had guys like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Jamie Mueller, who started in four Super Bowls for – um, the Buffalo Bills, he played in that league. A kid by the name of Brad Kohler who went on to uh, a really good, actually, wrestling career. Um, he was a state champ at Fairview. And my brother Bobby Joe played in that league. And Frankie Waite, who I'm sure you remember really well, he played in that league. Yes. Um, there was some decent – Tony Shaker, who was a stud at Ignatius back in the um, early 80s, he played in that league. It was, it was a lot of fun. You know, St. Angela, believe it or not, was a huge parish. And Fairview itself was a pretty big city for as small as it was geographically. Um, we had so many kids that St. Angela couldn't field teams. They would have had to field essentially three teams for, you know, every grade, uh, fifth through eighth grade. So 
we had a muni league and uh gosh it was it was a lot of fun it was you know when i was growing up you know coach flaherty was always at our games and um you know uh, i believe gizzy was the coach at, at ignatius at the time yeah um yeah, yeah um i think uh, was it coach urbar or rebar over at uh, holy name holy name yep yeah he, he was uh always at our games uh it was a lot of fun, and especially to see the high school coaches who you revered, you know, and they would come up and they'd be wearing their school colors. It was it was really, really cool, although, I mean, there was never any doubt where I was going to go because my two brothers had uh, attended St. Ed's, and, you know, I was, I've literally been a St. Ed's fan since my earliest recollection was 1973, being at a St. Ed's game. So, you know, there was there was no doubt where I was going. Okay. Uh, now I remember back in those days. I remember Mish to Bobby Joe Tedesco. Now people always give me a hard time saying I used to run the ball a lot, but I think hearing the announcer scream Mish to Tedesco, it got more play than Williams on the carry. <laughs> you know, well, unfortunately, you heard that a lot during the Moeller game, uh, their senior year. Uh, I'm to this day, I'm still convinced Bobby Joe holds the school record for catches. I think he had 16 in that game, but I think the official school record is 12 or 13. But, you know, they uh, Moeller was ranked number one in the country at the time, and, um, you know, we we were up 14 to 7 at half, and unfortunately all we did was, I guess, anger Dewan and Hiawatha um, Francisco because yeah. the final score <laughs> yeah. of that game, as you recall, Chris, was 38 to 14. <laughs> But, you know, oh, yeah. Bobby Joe, he, he ran hooks, comebacks, curls, and he, you know, when Mish would put the ball right on the money. Bobby Mish was such a quality quarterback. He was really good. And then went on to the Naval Academy and had a great career. Went on to the Naval Academy, and you know what? Uh, that offense, look, I'm, you know, I, I, I love that offense, but uh, for someone like Bobby Mish, I, I think if he was in a pro-style offense with a fullback and a tailback, and could you imagine Frankie Waite and Kelvin in the backfield together? Oh, my Lord. Oh, gosh, that would have been amazing. <laughs> that would have been, yeah, amazing. been. But, hey, you know what? I mean, that offense was pretty darn good. And that team, you know, unfortunately, they lost uh, Blake Geddes. They lost uh, Mike Donahue early in the season. That team was pretty darn good, and I thought they had a chance to win state, but they lose two of their best linemen, and it was pretty much, I don't want to say over, but – you know, those are two big uh, holes to fill. And then Tommy Zulo got hurt in the Moeller game, which was, I think, what, the ninth week of the season? And we were, yeah. you know, yeah. we still had a chance to make the playoffs. But obviously they went, uh, I think they finished 8-2 and two that year. And, you know, uh, obviously we didn't make it. Yeah, because they, they took one team from each region or something like that at the time. So, yeah. I, was uh, I, I, I think it may have been two teams from each region by then. I think it was eight teams made the playoffs. You know, and okay. unfortunately, gosh, Lake was uh, at the time AAA. We were AAA. That was before all the divisions. Joe's was AAA. Padua was AAA. You know, and those teams beat on each other week in and week out. You know, uh, I mean, the old Crown Conference, They, we weren't in the Crown Conference, I don't think, in 82. Uh, I think it had disbanded by then. But when that Crown Conference was around, I mean, oh, my goodness, and Latin was in there, uh, that, that conference had to be the best in the country. Yes, it was pretty competitive, very competitive. All right, so you go, you end up going to St. Ed's, but your experience was 
a little different from the average students for many reasons. First of all, what was it like to follow in your brother's footsteps, you know, as far as keeping up? And, and talk about Gino. Please talk about Gino. Oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. But what was it like going to St. Anne's and only, you know, your little Tedesco? Well, you know, I I can rewind all the way back. You know, my earliest memory of going to uh, physically going to the school was in 1970. Well, it may, may have been 72. My cousin Donnie played uh, for St. Anne's. He played split end and corner, and he ended up going to Yale, and he was a three-year starter at Yale under Carm Coza. And, uh Uh, He uh, had a great career at Yale, and I remember going there and watching him play. And it's funny, Chris, because my first experience or my first recollection of St. Ed's is a voice booming from the speakers at the stadium behind the the old stadium behind the school, and it was Mr. Tom Glassnap. Every time I hear his voice, and he sits literally ten feet away from me in the press box when Adam uh, and uh, I do the games, and when I hear his voice, it takes me back to 1972, you know, because that's the wow. first memory I had, you know. Um, and, you know, once my cousin got done playing at St. Ed's, um, Coach Mackey came in, um, Joe Mackey as the AD, and uh, my father became involved with the program. And my father, um, he was a chef at the Holiday Inn at the airport, and my dad made all the team meals, you know, and – you know, lo and behold, half the football team ended up working at the Holiday Inn, which was great because I would see those guys, you know, especially in the off season, maybe three, four times a week because I basically lived up there with my dad. And, you know, I, I Coach Mackey came in, and every Friday night seemed like, oh, gosh, Super Bowl Sunday. Coach Mackey, you know, WVIZ would televise about three games a year behind the school, and he made it so big. Um, uh, it was just very, very special time. And, you know, another one of my first memories, you know, I was probably four years old, and I'll never forget, my, my mom used to drop us off at St. Ed's. Uh, she'd pick us up at St. Angela and drop us off at St. Ed's uh, about a quarter after three on Fridays, you know, when they were home games. And I used to go down to the cafeteria, and somebody would give me ice cream, and then I would go in the coach's office and – Chris, we, you know, when we look back, we know we're blessed. I hope we know really how blessed we were. I would, I'd walk in there at the age of four years old, and in that, in that coach's office, Coach Flaherty would be still looking at film. You know, he wasn't satisfied. You know, he was still trying to get that edge. Or Coach Marson would be looking at film. It was the greatest memories of my life. I had the world by the tail. You know, and at the time, I really didn't know it. And as you know, Coach Flaherty would play such a pivotal role in our lives, you know, and still does to this day. Okay, okay. Nice, nice. All right. And then, you know, talk about your brother Gino. So your late brother Gino and your oh, my, Yeah, my best friend. My best friend. Uh, yeah, he uh, couldn't have had a better role model growing up. I mean, he was uh, there for me uh, – uh, every which way, uh, he was my protector, my bodyguard, my best friend, you know, uh, just had so much fun with him. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, uh, June 27th of 1999, his, his life came to a, a sudden, uh, sudden halt. And, you know, he, he passed away, ironically, uh, you know, having dinner. Um, 
he cooked up a steak, and uh, the last bite he took, unfortunately, uh, um, he, he choked on it. And, you know, uh, there's so much I want to talk about, you know, regarding this. It, it was so tragic. Um, and I, you know, at first I was questioning why, 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 you know. And there was one person, and I'm going to bring her up because I ran to her when I really had nowhere to go. I had to console my parents, you know, after my brother's death. I had to be there for them. And I ran to Mrs. Lola Williams, and I am forever indebted to her. And I'll never forget, um, you know, my brother passed away on June 27th. Unfortunately, he had taken the uh, following week off work, and um, he wasn't found uh, until uh, July 3rd. It was a Friday when they found him in 1999. And it just it threw me for a loop, as it did my brother Bobby. And, um, you know, while my parents, I, I was there to console them, you know, I didn't have a safety net until, you know, that Saturday morning I picked up the phone and I called, I called Mrs. Williams, you know. And I was still in shock. I called her, you know, a couple times throughout the day. You know, Sunday morning it started to really, really set in. And I said, why, why, why? And she said, baby, you'll find out the answer. You don't understand it now, but you'll find out the answer. And when you find out the answer, it will make perfect sense. And, you know, she, she, she was my safety net. I felt like one of the flying Walendas without a net. And because of your mom, I made it through the most difficult time of my life. Now, at that time, I was six years sober. I never thought of picking up a drink, uh, you know, after, you know, when that happened. And... If I did, you know who I would have let down? Certainly I would have let my brother down. I would have let uh, my surviving families down, family members down, and I would have let Lola down. And I couldn't do that. And I had, uh, you know, a young baby at the time and a wife. And, you know, my, I didn't want my, my child to ever see me, you know, pick up a drink. And uh, your mom helped me out in uh, so many different ways. And, you know, to this day, I think about her every single day. You know, and uh, I, I didn't mean to, you know, turn this, you know, from Gino to Mrs. Williams, but, you know, there's that correlation there that will always be there, and it's because of your mother that um, I was able to get through the most difficult time of my life, truly. Thanks, man, for bringing that up. I know that uh, she talked about that a lot. You talked about it, so appreciate it. But oh, you know, she was she was my guardian angel, man. You know, I mean. She helped me through uh, through it, and, you know, she became great. Uh, uh, she got to know my kids really well, and she got to know my wife really well. I mean, it was just a joy for all of us to be around her. And you know what, Chris? Look, you know, Gino and uh, Mrs. Williams are no longer – they're no longer with us. But, uh, you know, uh, I mean, they're in a kingdom where there's no tears, there's no pain. You know, the planet lost a couple of all-stars, but the kingdom of heaven – gained two Hall of Famers with uh, Mrs. Williams and Gino. Wow, that's nice. Thanks, Carmen. That's nice. No, that's, that's really nice. Hey, you're my brother, man. That's the truth, dude. And I don't mean to get emotional, but that, that's what it is, man. You know, I mean, we can talk sports all we want on this podcast, but at the end of the day, you know, that's just a microcosm of who we are. And, uh, you know, I, I've been so blessed to have uh, Lola and Gino and Casey Coleman and, you know, people like that in my life who are no longer with us. And, uh, you know, I'm the blessed man here. And, you know, um, so are you because we, you know, we knew those folks, you know. Yeah. All right. 
Well, Carmen, I didn't mean to get deep on you, man. I mean, I'm it's okay. No, that, that's okay. That's okay. So since we're close to this subject, let, let's fast forward. So we graduate in 87. You graduate in class with me, but you don't walk with our class. So if you don't mind sharing, let listeners know what was happening in your life and, that, and the challenge you faced then and what you face today. Well, uh, I didn't walk with I didn't walk with our class because, you know, um, I was pointing fingers. You know, I was I was an out of control alcoholic, and um, you know, I had all the tools around me. Um, I was in the best place the Lord could have put me. You know, on Detroit Avenue, inside those four walls of that school. But you know, I had uh, I had issues, and I blamed all my issues on other people. You know, typically when you point a finger, there are fifteen pointing back at you. And I was the one pointing the fingers, and, you know, I, I convinced myself that I didn't like attending St. Edward High School, you know. But I, I wasn't, I wasn't uh, you know, I was sick. I was, a, I was a raging alcoholic. I hate to admit it. Uh, but that school, at the end of the day, saved my life. And unfortunately, I thumbed my nose at my classmates, the administration, and collectively the school, and decided not to go to graduation. And, you know, Brother Robert, he had asked me four or five different times to come get come, uh, come from study hall and get fitted for my gown, my cap and gown. And I said, Brother, I just want to get out of here. And little did I know, you know, once I had that moment of clarity and once I surrendered and started to live the right way, how important uh, Brother Robert, Brother Tom, Coach Flaherty, Coach Barnhart, Coach Hyland, Coach Urbis, Mr. Batista, uh, Coach Bax. I mean, I could go on and on with the names. Even Mrs. Karliak in the cafeteria. You know, so many people were there for me, and I didn't see it. You know, but God was screaming at me, telling me I had the world by the tail. And I just lived my way, and, you know, unfortunately and fortunately, I finally got it on June 27th, uh, 1993, the day I had my final drink, you know. Um, but without, without the seed that was planted at St. Edward High School, Chris, I wouldn't be talking to you today. I would be in a casket. I truly believe that. Okay. All right. And then St. Ed's was special for you in a different way also later on. Like you said, you didn't walk with us in 87, but St. Ed's did something Super special for you. So share why personally, Saint Ed's Saint Ed's is such a great place, especially for you. Oh my goodness! You know, um, I was uh, headed the alumni golf outing, and I think it was 2012, August of 2012. It was out in Amon Oaks, and um, September is Recovery Awareness Month uh, throughout the country, and the Plain Dealer was doing a series on. Um, people and addiction and you know they called me and they said hey would you be willing to share your story so I said sure you know and I was on my way out to the golf outing and um, the reporter decided to call me as soon as I'm pulled into the parking lot at Avon Oaks and she said hey do you have a minute and I said well I'm going to the golf outing but yeah I got I got a few minutes well I was on the phone with her for an hour and you know she asked me about my struggles you know uh, when they started when they ended what caused me to to make uh, you know a dramatic change uh, in my life and and then she asked me about regrets and I said you know um, my biggest regret is that 
a place that saved my life, I totally thumbed my nose at. And she said, what's that? And I said, well, St. Edward. And I told her the story about not attending graduation. So, you know, it really weighed on me. And we talked for 45 minutes to an hour. And then, you know, I got out of my van. I walked into uh, the country club and I saw Mr. Kabaki there, uh, standing there. And he looked at me and he said, uh, hey, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I, my head's spinning. I, you know, I just did an um, interview with a reporter from the Plain Dealer on recovery for next month's, uh, one of next month's Sunday issues. And he said, uh, is there anything I can help you with or you know, anything I can do for you? I said, no. I said, I'm just a little discombobulated. She asked me about, you know, regrets I had. And I told, uh, you know, I told her, I said, I, you know, um, I didn't walk with my class when I was in high school. I mean, guys that truly meant the world to me, you know, and it really tears my heart. It, you know, I just, uh, it stinks. He said, wait, you didn't walk or you didn't graduate? I said, Oh, I graduated, Mr. Kabaki, but I didn't walk, you know, and I, I briefly told him the story, and uh, he said, well, I can make that happen. And I asked him, well, how can you make that happen? He goes, you can walk with uh, the class of 2013. And I'm like, you're kidding me. He said, no. He said, just do me a favor. Call me in February, and I'll get you fitted for a cap and gown. I said, no, Mr. Kabaki, no, I, that's awfully nice. He goes, no, call me. You know, and he was really stern. And I'm like, okay, the, you know, Mr. Kabaki's dead serious here. So I, I didn't call, and the middle of January, I get an um, uh, envelope. I get a piece of mail from St. Ed's, and I open it up, and it's from Mr. Kabaki. And he said, hey, please come down on this day between such and such, such a time, and I get fitted for a cap and gown. And I just broke down. I started crying. You know, I mean, I, I like to think I'm a tough guy, but I broke down and my wife came in the kitchen and she said, what's going on? And I handed her the letter and she read it and she put her hand over her heart and she started crying. And I was oh, just, uh, it was, it was incredible. And, you know, a week and a half later, whatever it may have been, I, I drove down the St. Ed's and I got fitted for a cap and gown and, you know, Mr. Mr. Kabaki, you know, he puts his uh, money where his mouth is. Uh, I, I ended up walking with the class of 2013, and you know, uh, two gentlemen that were really, really close with, uh, close to me. Um, you know, uh, Coach Irvis and Coach Highland. They actually they walked with me, and Chris, I felt like I was floating. I they announced my name, and we walked out, and I didn't even realize it, but I guess I got a standing ovation. I it was like a dream. It was so surreal, but it was one of the biggest blessings I ever had in my life, and it's certainly because of Mr. Kabaki and his huge heart. So, you know, I mean, I didn't. Sometimes I wonder why I have the good things I do today, because you know I think, gosh, you know, you were kind of a, a moron. You really don't deserve some of the things you have today, but <laughs> you know. Um, I don't know, you know, I, uh, I, my faith, my faith in the Lord is never going to waver, and you know, I, I can, I can tell you, you know, a lot of, a lot of, you know, bad things have happened in my life, and I'm glad they did. I mean, God had a plan, you know. I, I took a journey that wasn't always the best, but you know, now today, uh, and you know, I, I don't broadcast it, but you know, I, I try to work with kids, you know, kids that are typically between 14 and you know, 20, you know, 14 and 28, you know, kids that got, you know, issues much like I did, um, you know, because I want to, you know, when we're that young, we really don't trust a lot of people, you know, and I, I just try to, you know, get inside their heads and let them know, look, man, I'm here for you, bro. 
you know, there's no ulterior motive. I all I know is that I walked in your shoes, and when you're young and you're trying to get sober, it is really, really difficult. So, oh wow, wow. Well, good for you, good for you for reaching back and helping those kids out. So I know there's a lot of times when they can't turn to anybody. So thank you for that. That's huge. Uh, well, you know, though, I mean, you know, truly, it is a two-way street. You know, by you know, by me being there for them, I, you know, they're there for me. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's fellowship, and you know, they help keep me uh, they help keep me sober. You know, and you know, knock on wood, uh, um, the guys that uh, you know, some of the old timers that I hang out with, um, you know, uh, we've had pretty good track records, and these kids have become like our family. And you know, I mean, they're now young men; they're all in their you know late twenties and mid thirties. Uh, but they're doing the right thing, and they're working. They got wives. They're, you know, they're not drinking or they're not drugging. They're, you know, they're leading very, very productive lives. So, you know, it's uh, it, it's great to see. That's good. That's good. All right, we're gonna back up a little bit. You brought up the plain dealer. So let's yes. talk about the essay that changed your life. So the plain dealer would annually annually run a contest where students submitted an essay to become the bat boy for the Cleveland Indians, and you won. How in the <laughs> hell did you even decide to become the bat boy right. or submit an essay? Let's relive this. <laughs> okay, now, this is my right hand of the Lord, may he strike me dead if I'm lying. I had no intention, okay? All I know is that my beautiful brother Gino, one Sunday morning, comes into my room, and he's got the newspaper, sports page in his hand, and he said, hey, read that uh, small little article about Bat Boy Contest. You know, and I'm like, why? He's like, just read it. So I read it, and he said, hey, you enter that thing. If you win, I'll buy you a car. So I, you know, I got on pen and paper, and I just started writing, and it had to be 500 words or less. And I don't specifically remember uh, everything I wrote, but I remember writing something uh, to the effect, you know, I've always wanted to be in the big leagues. Unfortunately, I can't hit a curveball. This is my closest uh, opportunity to get on a uh, big league ball field. And, um, you know, I put it in an envelope, you know, not thinking that anything would come of it. Um, and, you know, my mom mailed it. Well, you know, I entered the thing as a joke. Uh, lo and behold, about four or five days later, I get a call from the plane dealer. And they say, hey, uh, we need you to come down to the pewter mug at Cleveland Stadium for an interview for the bat boy position. And I'm thinking to myself, all right, this is a joke, right? And uh, the young lady on the line said, no, you know, be there uh, Saturday morning at 10 o'clock. You'll be among 25 candidates that are interviewing for the job. And, you know, by the end of the interview process, uh, you know, we'll have our, uh, we'll have our bat boy and uh, two ball boys for the new season, the next uh, season. So, I go down to the pewter mug, and there was 25 of us, uh, you know, uh, dads were there, and um, they broke the group up into five groups of five, and they brought us all in, you know, in uh, groups of five, and um, I was in there, and there were four other kids, and they asked us a variety of questions, and they dismissed us, and after they interviewed all, all the kids, they picked the finalist out of each group of five. So then, um, you know, they bring in the five finalists in, and I remember Chuck Heaton, God love him, what a great, great man. 
uh, Chuck Heaton was a sports writer at the, the Plain Dealer at the time, and he was one of the gentlemen uh, that was interviewing us. There was another uh, Plain Dealer representative and three representatives from the ball club. And I remember the first question out of the gate, <laughs> the gate was to me, and it was from Mr. Heaton, and he asked me, what would you do if a ball player was, had a, uh, was having a bad day and he got on you about it? And I basically told Mr. Heaton, well, look, these guys are making a lot of money. Um, I would tell him basically shove it up his ass and suck it up. And I remember everybody kind of leaned back from the table. And Mr. Heaton looked at me like I was half nuts. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm done. You know, I was looking around at the rest of the boys. I'm like, hey, great to be with you all, you know. Well, they asked the rest of the boys the same question, and nobody gave a uh, answer comparable to mine, obviously. So they asked us a flurry of other questions. I can't remember exactly what they were. And they dismissed us, and after about 10 minutes, they called us back in, and they uh, you know, announced two runners-up who were going to be the ball boys uh, for the upcoming season, and then they would announce the bat boy, who would then be there for two seasons, the first year on the visitor side, the next year on the Indian side. So they announced the two ball boys, and I, my name wasn't among those announced. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm definitely done now. You know, I'm like, yeah, my dad's uh, out there. You know, it's only a 10-minute ride home. So and they announced uh, the Bat Boy winner, and they announced my name. I was stunned. I'm like, you're kidding me. All right. Right on. I dig this. This is cool. <laughs> so I ended up winning it. And, you know, I entered it as a joke. I ended up winning this thing, and I think I beat out – uh, they said it was over 5,000 kids from, like, Northeast Ohio that entered the contest. And wow. I was probably the only one that was real laissez-faire in writing uh, his essay. And lo and behold, again, it's God's plan, Chris. I mean, that wasn't yeah. me. That was that was my higher power. You know, that was the direction and the assistance I received. I ended up winning it. And, okay. you know, uh, I meant when Mr. Heaton asked me that question, I meant uh, my response was true, and I meant what I said. Uh, and, it, you know, he told me during the year, he said, you couldn't have answered that question any better because I would see him at the ballpark every day. He said, you answered it like you should have, like a young, strong man, and I'll never forget that. Um, needless to say, uh, Gino, God love him, he told me he'd buy me a car if I uh, won the contest. Um, that didn't happen. He ended up joining the Air Force, but it was oh, wow. okay. It was, it was the best job I ever had. You know, it truly was. Nice. Nice. And how long were you the bat boy for the Indians? Or how long were you with the Indians? I was with the Indians for two years. It was 1986. I was on the visitor's side. Um, and it was, it was crazy because in 86, we opened up with the Tigers. So I show up at the ballpark and, you know, I walk through the concourse. I get down to the visitor's clubhouse. And Billy Sheridan, God rest his soul, he was the visiting clubhouse manager and, you know, it was the first time I ever met him. And uh, he said, hey, your locker is right over there. And he pointed me to my locker. I'm sitting in between Lance Parrish and Jack Morris. And Alan Trammell wow. is two stalls away from me. And Lou Whitaker was about three stalls to my left. I'm thinking to myself, I'm in heaven. Like, the previous year I saw Jack Morris on NBC on the Saturday afternoon game. But I'm against the White Sox at Old Comiskey. No, I'm sitting right next to the guy, and he's eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Oh, yeah, man, I'm, I'm awesome. top of the world. <laughs> you know? That is awesome. But, yeah. you know, uh, I was on the visitor side uh, the one year, and uh, 
the next year I went to the tribe side and you know I got to know a lot of really really good guys I mean Cal Ripken is a heck of a man an ace of a human being and you know I I've got kids and I, I I try to raise them the right way and I remember when I was growing up I couldn't stand Reggie Jackson okay he had three homers against the Dodgers who I absolutely loved you remember that game and yes. you know so I was like God ah, Reggie Jackson he's arrogant he's cocky you know well let's fast forward that was 1977 let's fast forward to 1986 Reggie's with the Angels and it's a September game it's a Friday night and they're in town to begin uh, a weekend series with the Indians. Well, my grandfather passed away, uh, and I found out about it as soon as I got to the park. My parents called the clubhouse, and I found out uh, my dad's dad had died. And I mean, he lived a full life. He was, you know, a hundred years old when he passed away. And um, but I was, you know, I was shocked and I was bummed, and I just wanted some alone time. So I walked out of the clubhouse and I took a seat on the top step of the steps that lead down to the tunnel, and all of a sudden, Reggie Jackson walks in, and he looks at me, and he asks me if I was okay. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I, I just got bad news. My my grandfather passed away. And Reggie's like, you know what, Biggin? You know, I'm, I'm going to get dressed. You go down to, the, you go down to uh, uh, the dugout, and I'll meet you down there. So I go down to the dugout. Reggie comes down about 15 minutes later. And Reggie has his own homemade peach chew. And obviously, you know, I like to chew tobacco. And Reggie comes down, and he's got a bag of peach chew, and he, like, taps me on the leg, hands me, his, hands me the bag. He's like, have a, you know, have a chew. So I put a chew in, and he's like, tell me about your grandpa. You obviously, you, you love the man, huh? And I was like, hey, he's, he was my idol. You know, came from Italy when he was, you know, 14 years old, got a job immediately in the coal mines, and, you know, had a great life. And, you know, he had 14 kids, and, you know, I'm here because of him. And he just asked me question after question about my grandfather, my grandmother, my family. And he was truly, genuinely interested in me. All right, this is Reggie Jackson, a man that I so unfairly judged, you know, in 1977 because he homered three times off the Dodgers, you know. And I try to tell my kids, you never judge anybody. Chris, that, I'm, that was a seismic moment in my life. Now, I, haven't, I have seen Reggie at the park over the years, um, uh, very infrequently. I've seen him probably three times in the last, you know, 35 years. But Reggie Jackson is a hero to me. And, you know, it's another life lesson. You know, something simple and stupid as three home runs in a World Series game against the Los Angeles Dodgers. And, you know, uh, I thought he was an arrogant guy because the way he carried himself, the way he ran the bases when the ball was flying out of the park, and the guy truly cared. <laughs> and was and He truly cared and was interested in my life. And, again, that was God putting Reggie Jackson in my life to get me off the ledge, much like, you know, Mrs. Williams did when Gino passed away. I mean, all the great, all the great things, you know, uh, just smacked me right in the forehead, you know, and it took me a while to realize everything, you know, but yeah, Reggie Jackson, uh, uh, to this day, uh, I, I consider him uh, uh, just an ace of a human being. Nice. And you're a Yankee nice. fan, so I know you love him. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, so Carmen, so you were a yeah. bat boy. So what were some of the day-to-day duties of the bat boy? 
what kind of things were you doing besides running the home plate, grabbing some, you know, a helmet and a bat? What did you do? Um, actually, uh, I'd get to the ballpark. Uh, you know, we would have school till you know three o'clock every day, and if it was a school day, I'd I'd get down there about twenty after three, and uh, basically I would get dressed and I would uh, with a huge cart, and I would carry the bat bag down to uh, uh, the cart, and then carry the you know, the two catchers, their bags of equipment down, put them on the cart, uh, the helmets, the pine tar, um, the rosin, um, you know, the donuts, uh, the, the lead pipe for the on-deck circle. And I would take all that down there about, you know, gosh, quarter to, quarter to four, and I would put all the bats in the bat rack and put the helmets in the helmet rack, and I would just sit there until it was time for BP, and then I would go out and shag flies. You know, it was it was awesome. I was, you know, I got to know all the pitchers really, really well for every team because, you know, the pitchers all think they're great athletes. Well, they are, but, you know, they think they can go climb a wall during BP and pull one back into the yard. You know, they're all out there shagging flies. And they would actually bet, you know, they would play a game where they would bet, you know, on what kind of catch they would make. I don't even know what they called the game, but got to know those guys really well. They were all a bunch of goofballs, um, especially the closers. I don't know what it is about closers, but they're a little different. You know, they're a little odd, uh, but all great, all great guys. So I would, I would basically shag during um, batting practice, uh, or I would go behind the net uh, that was, or go, uh, yeah, go behind the net that was behind second base, and you know, the pitchers or whoever's out in the outfield shagging, they'd catch the ball and they'd throw it into me, and I'd put it in a bucket and run it to the mound when uh, the BP pitcher was, uh, you know, running low on balls, but. That's what I did okay. before the game, and during the game, I would just, you know, hang out in the dugout and, um, you know, go when the visiting team, my first year, when they were at bat, you know, if the guy didn't strike out, I'd go out and get the bat, and uh, that was it. And then after the game was when you really, really worked. And I got another great story. Um, so the Yankees were in town, and it rained all day this one day. It was like, uh, I don't know if it was a Thursday or Friday. But it rained all day. It stopped about a half hour before batting practice, and the Yankees took batting practice. Well, when you take batting practice, you don't wear your game cleats. And as a bat boy and the ball boy and the clubhouse guys, we got to clean all the cleats with a wire brush, and then, you know, we got to wipe them down, and then we have to shine them. We have to shine all the shoes. And this one day, it was raining like crazy. Um, it cleared up. The Yankees were able to take BP, so um, – you know, each player that took BP uh, had two pairs of cleats. So after the game, it must have been a Thursday. Yeah, it was a, it was a Thursday, and it was uh, a school night. So I was going to be there till about two thirty three in the morning, because you got to wait after you wipe the shoes down. You got to wait for them to dry before you can shine them. And um, Dave Winfield's locker was right inside the clubhouse door, and we used to clean all the cleats outside in the hallway, right outside the clubhouse door. So there's about 50 pairs of shoes that need, you know, the mud knocked off them, need, you know, wiped down so we can shine them. And then uh, he is sitting inside, and he was there probably until about, you know, 1230 in the morning. I'm out there, and I'm shining the shoes, and he, I put my hand up into one of his cleats, and I feel something. I pull it out, and it's a $100 bill. He saw me, and he just winked at me. He knew I was going to wow. be there. He stuck a $100 bill in his cleat. 
You know, wow. I mean, it could it, it could have gone the uh, you know the ball boy, whoever got you know whoever got to his shoes first was going to get it, but he knew I was going to be there all night, you know, and he hooked me up, and uh, you know I haven't seen Winnie and gosh he spent the last year of his career with the Indians. I think that was 95 when Eddie Murray was here. That was the last time I saw him, but forever, you know, grateful to him for doing that. I mean, I was just a peon bat boy, you know, but he had a heart and he knew that I was going to be there a long time and he hooked us up, you know? So it was, it was, it was great. It was great. I've been blessed. My God. I mean, telling these stories, I, I forget about them. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I just, right now I got to pinch myself, you know, it's crazy. <laughs> Okay. Uh, now, was that the coolest gift that you got from a player, or did you get something else, anything else that you remember? Um, oh, Kirby Pocket gave me a pair of his cleats. Uh, I actually uh, I had a pair of uh, – they were relatively brand-new Nikes, and I blew the side out of them, and I blew it out. The twins were in town, and I, I, blew, I blew the side of the shoe out in probably the third inning. So – uh, I was sitting, I was sitting next to Kirby in the dugout. And he saw my shoe, and he's like, "Hey, run up to my locker." I'm like, "For what? You you got bubble gum? What do you need?" He goes, "No, there's a pair of cleats in there. Run up there, go put them on." So I run up there, I put them on, and uh, I come back down. And you know, after the game, you know, I go to give them back to him. He goes, "No, you keep those. Those are yours." And I was like, "Sweet!" Kirby gave me a pair of cleats. I mean, they were just wow. cleats, but. There were Kirby Puckett's cleats, and Kirby Puckett was one of the coolest dudes I ever met. You know, I was like, all right, we, you know, we got we got the same wide, fat feet. You know, and uh, they fit me <laughs> perfect. And I had those actually. Um, uh, unfortunately, I think my ex-wife still has them. Um, they're packed away somewhere. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I mean, that was a, you know, that was a, a cool gift. I mean, I you got so many autographed balls, uh, broken bats. I mean, a ball player broke mm-hmm. a bat. You know, we get to keep it. Uh, so it's pretty cool. I got, you know, memorabilia like that. Um, I mean, not necessarily gifts, but, you know, I mean, there are things that, you know, a lot of people don't have, and it's, it's just really, really cool. You know? okay. um, another, another, I mean, there were so many good guys. I mean, Cal Ripken, George Brett, Dick Hauser, who was the manager of uh, the Kansas City Royals, got to know him pretty well. I was actually going to go to Kansas City um, the following year, but uh you know, Dick was going to um, fly me in, but he ended up getting brain cancer and he passed away, uh, you know, uh, at a very young age. So, you know, uh, another great guy. Brett Saberhagen was a trip. He was fun. Oh, the Minnesota Twins were out of control. Um, they had Burt Blylevin, <laughs> Gary Gaetti. He was crazy. Kent Herbeck was nuts. And I say this in an endearing way. They were all just mm-hmm. a blast. Ron, Ron Davis, the relief pitcher, he was he was a lot of fun. Um Gosh, I, I could go on and on with, with all teams. Sparky Anderson, uh, he was – Sparky actually pulled me aside. How much time do we have? Are we running another time? You're fine. No, 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 you're fine. You're fine. So Keep talking. Um, the second time uh, the Tigers came to town, you know, we opened up with them uh, uh, my first year, and um, they came to town probably about a month and a half later. And I was out on the, the field with the grounds crew, and um, I was uh, throwing the football around with the, the groundskeepers. It was about 1.30 in the afternoon, and Sparky came out, you know, and all the groundskeepers, they know all the, all the teams and the managers. And so and Sparky came out. 
and he was just hanging out with us. And uh, um, I had a chew in, so he called me to the dugout, and he's like, do you know what that can do to you? Now, Sparky Anderson chewed, you know, at least when he was with the Big Red Machine, if you remember. I remember him chewing, yeah. and um, he wasn't chewing when he was with Detroit, and he told me all the dangers about chewing. And he said, young man, I'm telling you, the longer you do it, it's going to be that much more difficult to quit. And that could you know, ultimately kill you. And, um, I mean, I, I, I thank him for his advice and his wisdom. Unfortunately, you know, as you know, I kept chewing. But, I mean, he pulled me aside. And, again, that was uh, another, uh, I don't want to call it an incident. And it's a, it's a God said it. It's God working. You know, I mean, God put Sparky in my life to offer wisdom to keep me from doing something that could potentially end my life. And uh, uh, he was a super, super, super man. Um, had a similar incident with Joe Garagiola. You know, he was uh, one of the broadcasters for NBC at the time. Oh, wow. And, yeah. And one of his friends, uh, uh, he played with the Cardinals, ended up getting oral cancer from chewing. And he saw me, and it was a Saturday morning. It was about 10 in the morning, and we weren't having batting practice for probably early batting practice started about 1130 because the games back then on Saturday started at 135. Well, no, this was a national game, so it started at 1. So Joe was in the uh, Indians' dugout, and we were actually playing uh, the Yankees that weekend, and I had a chew in, and he sat me down. He said, you know what, young man? And he kind of, you know, he read me the riot act. Uh, Sparky was a little bit more... Uh, graceful, you know, but Joe was stern and he said, that stuff is bad. You know, you should take that out of your mouth and quit that habit immediately. You know, and I, I, I didn't blow him off. I was all ears. I mean, I, this was a guy I grew up watching on TV, you know, so just seeing him there is the first time I ever saw him in my life. And, you know, I, I did take it out, but obviously, you know, he went upstairs, the game started and I chewed throughout the game, but you know, there he was, he was offering his advice and, you know, because one of his teammates with the St. Louis Cardinals um, ended up getting oral cancer. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. he told me about it. But, again, it, it didn't make me slam the brakes on uh, on that habit. I, I continued to do it. But, again, another incident where, you know, I was blessed to be getting, you know, great advice from, you know, somebody who truly cared. All right. And you were blessed then and you're still blessed now. But uh, before we oh, talk I'm... about your career at, at TAM, I want to do something. I want to uh, do a little speed round. I want to throw some things out at you, and you have to say the first thing that comes to mind. But I don't really feel comfortable doing this with you, so I'm going right. to need some help asking you these questions. So hold on a sec. Uh, oh, no. I know who you're calling. Can you, uh, can you ask him these questions, buddy? I sure can. Uh, I'm honored. You know, wait a second. I didn't call. I didn't tell him I was doing this with you, and I purposely made sure I didn't tell him. Apparently, you did. But it's the speed run. Are you ready, Hooch? First thing that comes to mind. Keep good. I was gonna do our speed round with Carmen Tedesco today. Hooch, <laughs> are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go, man. All right. We're going to start off easy on you. St. Edward High School. St. Edward High School? What's the first thing that comes to my mind? mind. Lifesaver. St. Edward High School, lifesaver. There you go. 
All right. Yeah. I'm on to number two. Pocket ace. <laughs> okay. Say it again. Pocket aces, Nooch. Pocket aces get cracked. There you go. Okay, <laughs> number three. Now we're going to get a little interesting on here. Are you prepared? Yes, let's go, Uncle Keith. Come on. Throw Mama from the train. Mike Trevisano. <laughs> <laughs> number four. Here we go. That's all on you. Back in the high school days, we had the spirit team. You recall? <laughs> yes. yes. No, don't ask me this question. Don't what ask me this question, mind? please. What comes to mind? The spirit team said hit them hard. <laughs> no. 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 I'm passing. I'm passing. I'm passing. Next question, please. Okay. <laughs> number five. Or number three. No one. No one. No one behind door number three. We, we had right. this discussion when I we had this discussion when I got off the air this after or tonight. Yeah, you know there's no one behind door number three. Yes. <laughs> I'm just gonna raise my okay. kids as best I can and sell off into the sunset. Yes. Okay, so so we do have a bonus question for you. All right. Yeah, you, you were talking about being a bad boy for the Cleveland Indians. Yeah. So what's what comes to mind? when you were handling those big sticks. <laughs> trying, trying not to get pine tar on my hands because it took forever to get off. The season would end in late September, and I still had pine tar on my hands until early November. Yeah, asking me a sick question like that. <laughs> you know, I made it a point to tell you or to not tell you I was going to be on this podcast. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Yeah. Uncle Keith shows I up. I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. All right, new so hey. we we got about we got about ten minutes left, all right? So Keith Keith, stay on the line. Stay on the line. I'll stay. I'm just listening. All right. So so being at the right place at the right time. So you end up getting into jur- journalism radio. Talk about the big break that you had in your career. <laughs> Mr. Uh, and how, was unfortunately, and how did you find out? I, I swear, to, let, let me tell the story. I, I, okay, so John Demianyuk, um Unfortunately, he was a retired Seven Hills auto worker, for those uh, who maybe listen who are a bit younger, and he was accused of being uh, Ivan the Terrible, um, uh, Nazi death camp guard at Treblinka, and he was accused of heinous, torturous murders of many, many people. Well, he came to the States after the war. He was an auto worker, had uh, a career, had a family in the States, and in the mid-'80s, he was stripped of his citizenship, and he was sent over to Israel to stand trial for being Ivan the Terrible, in which he was convicted. Well, uh, that was 86. In 1993, the Supreme Court, the Israeli Supreme Court, overturned his conviction, and he was set free after serving seven years in prison. Well, the whole world knew he was coming back home, and 
media from all over the country or all over the world came to the States to cover his arrival back home. And, uh, I mean, all the major networks from, uh, you know, ABC, NBC, um, CNN at the time, um, you know, and all the, all the major global news agencies uh, throughout the world, they were here. And there were two places everybody thought that John Demyanyuk was going to land when he came back, and that was either Hopkins or Burke. Well, I, I knew, and it's just common sense, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not being arrogant, um, but it was common sense that he wasn't going to land at those two airfields. He was going to land at Hopkins or Burke because the media was all there, and it would just been madness. It would have been total chaos once he got off the plane. So he flew to JFK, and um, he got off uh, the commercial plane there, and I was told by someone that he may have gotten on a small six-seat aircraft. Okay, that's the only thing I, I got. So I knew, all right, he's not landing at Burke, and he's not landing at Hopkins. And about three, I was working morning drive. It was uh, about five in the morning. I was working uh, three to three to noon every day. So about five in the morning, he was landing at uh, he was landing at JFK probably about six. So about five in the morning, I got on the horn and I called all the sheriff's departments throughout the seven county area, and I asked each dispatcher that answered, "Do you have any airports in your counties?" You know, and I knew there was Lost Nation in Cuyahoga County and uh, in our county, uh, but it's, yeah, he's not going to land there. So, you know, I called Erie County, I called uh, Lorraine County, um, Geauga Lake. The last county I called was uh, Medina County. And the young lady uh, on the uh, phone, I asked her, I said, do you have any airfields in your, in your county? And she said, yeah, we got one that's called Freedom Field. And I'm like, Freedom Field? Wow, that's kind of odd. You know, this guy has just spent seven years in an Israeli prison, and he's just regained his freedom. You know, so... I was like, where is that? She said, well, it's right off uh, 71. I, I don't remember if it was uh, on 303 or 8. I can't remember specifically where it was. She, she told me where it was. I said, all right, thank you very much. I hung up the phone, and I knew it was going to be, you know, about uh, a three-hour plane ride, you know, in one of those small small jets or small aircraft. So I, uh, I told uh, the guy I was working with, Cliff Bakley, I said, hey, you know what? why don't we go down there? What the heck? I'm the only person, the only body available. Uh, it makes sense. It's a small airfield. And look at its name, you know, Freedom Field. Why not? So I drive down there and I pull in about a quarter to 10 in the morning. And basically it is a ranch style house. That was the tower. It was a ranch style house with a small garage oh. behind it that could fit probably four or five small aircraft. And when I pulled into the parking lot, the parking lot could probably you know, fit about five or six cars. Well, there was a Lincoln Continental, brand-new Lincoln, sitting in there. And it's, you know, I pulled out next to it, and the engine was running. So I'm like, okay, maybe I'm on to something. So all of a sudden, about ten minutes later, a plane comes out of the clouds, and it starts to make its approach. And the guy in this car fires it in reverse, slams it in drive, and just drives toward this huge gate. Well, I get out of my car, and I got my tape recorder, and the car fires through the gate, and there are like four mechanics. And I'm sprinting, 
and they make like a human wall, and they basically tackled me. And I said, that's oh. him, that's him. And they're like, no, that's, that's no, nobody you should be concerned with. I said, no, that's, that's Demyanyuk. And they basically wouldn't let me go. Uh, so the plane lands, and this literally takes, I don't know, 30 seconds. The car drives right up to the plane, and they're basically detaining me. Now, I'm about 400 yards away, so I see um, Congressman Trafficant, who fought uh, vigorously for Demyanyuk's release, I see him exit the plane first, and then John, and then little John, his son, John Jr., uh, he gets out of the plane. So little John and big John get in the car. Now, again, I'm 400 yards away, uh, so I'm like, all right, my best bet is to try and flag him down. And that guy came barreling through that gate at probably 50 miles an hour. There was no way you know, I was going to stop them, and I was too far from my car to run back to my car and then go chase them. I was like two, maybe 300 yards from my car. So I see, you know, Congressman Traffic, and he's about 400 yards away, and I tell the mechanics, let me go. Let me go talk to him at least. And they're like, go ahead. Well, I, you know, I knew Congressman Traffic since I was a little kid. He and my Uncle Frank were real good friends. And he sees me running toward him, and he's just shaking his head. And I get up to him, and <laughs> am, I, am I allowed – I don't want to use the Lord's name in vain, but I, I want to quote him. He's basically like, damn it, who told you? And I said, nobody told me. And I can't breathe. I was like Carl Lewis. I just sprinted 400 yards. I couldn't breathe. He's like, no, I want to know, damn it, who told you? And I said, Jim, nobody told me. And I'm out of breath. I'm like, it's dumb luck. I swear to you, nobody told me he was landed here. <laughs> and I, then I stood up, you know, because I was bent over because I couldn't breathe. And I stood up, and he smacked me across the face. You know, and he's like, you know, <laughs> GD, he said, GD, good job, you know, good damn, you know, good job, get your tape rolling. So here I am, I'm half out of breath, I'm interviewing him, and he's just shaking his head. He couldn't believe I was there, but he smacked me across the face. I'm like, God, I can't even breathe, you know? <laughs> that is a classic, that is a classic. He complimented me, but he was, you know, he, he demanded to know who told me. And I said, Congressman, it's, it's dumb luck, you know. I mean, I knew that, you know, uh, Big John and Little John, they got on that small plane at JFK. I didn't know that, but, you know, I, nobody told me where he was going, you know. I knew he was flying back to northeast Ohio. I mean, it was like finding a needle in the haystack. I got lucky, I guess, you know. So. Uh, uh, you, you still nice. continue to get smacked, Nooch. <laughs> yeah, by Gavin. Yeah, we won't go there. I, I can't even go to his house, uh, Chris. Gavin beats the crap out of me. You know, I, I love the kid. And then when Adam comes over, I mean, the three of them, they jump on me. And they beat on me. Yeah. So First unfair. I'll say, it, I'll say it. They smack him in his man boobs. Yeah, they, they, they hit me in my knockers. Oh, my gosh. All right, Nooch. Shameless plug time. So, so brag about your alter ego, Carmen Angelo, and your show. What time do you come on, and how can fans find you on social media? Oh, gosh. Well, on social media, I'm, I'm still new. I'm Carmen Angelo Tedesco Jr. on uh, Facebook. And um, you know, we're on Monday through Friday, 3 to 7. Uh, you can hear us on you know, News Radio WTAM 1100. Uh, you can also hear us on the iHeartRadio app. Um, it's a free download, but 
No, you know what? I mean, that, that's all fine and dandy, but, you know, I'm just nooch, and I'm so excited to be able to talk to you guys, man. I mean, I don't even want to talk about my career. I mean, that's just that's been icing on the cake. I mean, all the other great things that we have talked about in the last, what, hour or so, you know, I mean, that's me. That's my life, and that's who I'm always going to be. I'm always going to be, you know, little Tedesco to the guys that graduated from 75 and through 83, or Nucci to all you guys, you know? Got you, got you. All right. So, once again, Carmen Angelo, Carmen Tedesco, with our buddy Keith yeah. Goodall joining us on the show. So, Carmen Tedesco, I love you, brother, and you know it. Love you. And yes, I, absolutely. I, I, man. Wish, I wish you continued success, and I'll continue to tune into the St. Ed's games. You know that. And, Keith, thanks again for coming on and, and reading those horrible questions. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, thank you guys for letting me join. I love you guys. Love you, too, but you know what? I mean, I made it a point not to tell you that I was going to be on with Chris tonight. <laughs> and lo and behold, look who shows up. Hey, by the way, uh, I just want to say one more thing. Uncle Keith makes the best meatloaf. Tell him that story. <laughs> he, are you still there? Yes, I'm there. He, he doesn't like to he doesn't like to see me coming when he's cooking. I'm like the closer. Whatever the boys don't eat, I come in. I'm like goose gossage. I shut it down. Well, yeah. I have three. Makes, I have I have three boys, and I made a five pound meatloaf. And uh, I don't mean to keep it, but I just got to tell this quick story. I made a five pound meatloaf. I made it the day before so that when the kids came home, they had it to eat. Nooch uh, happened to fall asleep on my couch, and when everybody got home there was one piece of meatloaf left. Well, they got home two days later because I had some for breakfast the one day, remember? Yeah, well, that was the next day. They came home in the evening. So you ate it the day before and for breakfast, five pounds. I didn't know they were coming home. It was, it was like the last supper. And this guy, I got to give him credit. He can sling it. I mean, he's like Emerald in the kitchen. This guy, he's, he's an ace. He's tremendous. Tell him about the pasta we made Sunday. He's got to go. <laughs> oh, Chris has to go? Chris, no, thank no, you so no, much. Love no, you. Keep you, boy. No, 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 no. You get one more story. You started, you get one more story. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, see, we got a Sunday tradition at Uncle Keith's, and we broke tradition a couple weeks ago because the store didn't have any um, uh, Alfredo sauce, so we had to make a red sauce, which was all right. But every Sunday, uh, I make uh, I I go over to Keith's on the weekends. You know, I'm I'm at home during the week essentially because I live close to my office. But I go to Keith's on uh, the weekends to spend time with the boys, and you know, my kids live right down the street from them. So we have uh, we have um, linguine uh, chicken Alfredo every Sunday, and it's you know it's amazing, and it really only takes like about 45 minutes to cook. But you know, I'll go and I'll buy all the things for it. And I cook it up. And the other day, Sunday, Keith had the friggin' onions to tell me that I basically ate too much. He went somewhere after I cooked it, and he came back. And I made two pounds. And, yeah, a portion was gone. But he's like, Jesus. And then he's bitching because there's linguine on the floor. I mean, things happen, right? You know? But yeah, they happen. <laughs> Chris, he doesn't eat out of a bowl or a plate. He grabs serving utensils and eats with. Well, I know I use a serving bowl. I use a regular fork and a spoon, but I, I do. I use a serving bowl. So he's got really small bowls. 
you know, you really can't put a lot of a lot of food in there. He started moaning at me on Sunday. He said, you know, I went to go get one of the serving bowls. He's like, just grab a small bowl and come back a couple of times. Well, that takes exercise. You know, let me let me just, you know, throw it in the trough and have at it. But I don't know. He's my boy. I love him to death, although sometimes he gives me gas. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's it. I'm done with you, too. Uh, Carmen Tedesco, keep good off. Thank you guys once again for coming on the Chris Williams Podcast Hour. I will talk to both of you soon. Again, it's been a pleasure. I'm honored. This has been awesome. Thank you. Keithy Boy, we got hockey practice tomorrow at 810 at Winterhurst. Okay. You in?